Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for March 16, 2018. I'm Brian Cardell. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient constitutional and appellate law questions. Today, as the federal government and the state of California set to square off in the Eastern District in a lawsuit challenging three of the state's so-called sanctuary city laws, we'll speak with Professor Josh Blackman, a South Texas College of Law, prolific legal scholar, commentator, and amicus often weighing in where cases define the constitutional boundary between state and federal power. He says one of California's laws, which limits state officers' ability to cooperate with federal immigration authorities, is probably a permissible exercise of state power, and that a federal law the DOJ says conflicts with California statute and thus overrides it by dint of the supremacy clause may in fact be unconstitutional in its own right. The two other challenged laws, Professor Blackman says, are on more dubious footing. Those ensure California officials can access detention facilities where non-citizens await potential removal and prohibit private employers from allowing immigration enforcement raids at their workplaces unless federal agents possess warrants. We'll dive into all of those thorny constitutional thickets in just a few minutes and also discuss with Professor Blackman the interesting alignment of so-called fair-weather federalists and traditional federalists that this case and, and others in the Trump era has brought about. But first, let's get to our opening briefs. The Ninth Circuit Monday reversed a summary judgment that had been granted to the County of Los Angeles and former Sheriff Lee Baca in a case where a civil detainee, while awaiting adjudication of an involuntary commitment petition under the state's sexually violent predator law, was held for six years in conditions essentially the same as those imposed on his criminal counterparts, and indeed was held in the same population as some number of criminal inmates, where the detainee suffered attacks and threats based on his status as a potential, though as yet unadjudicated, sexual predator. Because those conditions may well have violated precedent stipulating that civil detainees may not be held in conditions that amount to punishment, the case was remanded for further proceedings. One case on the Ninth Circuit docket might get a hearing sooner than its already expedited schedule was slated to provide if U.S. Department of Justice attorneys succeed with the motion filed this week aiming to shorten by 21 days the curtailed briefing window for parties in the appeal of the Northern District's DACA injunction. The DOJ's motion cites its desire to resolve any ultimate Supreme Court appeal of the case before the High Court adjourns for the summer, our Ninth Circuit beat reporter Nick Sonnenberg has covered this case closely and is here with a bit more. Nick, thanks for hopping on the podcast. As always, thanks for having me. Yeah, so can you fill me in on the latest episode in this ongoing appellate drama here? Um, the Department of Justice sought uh, sort of an extra expedited briefing schedule, I think, before the Ninth Circuit. Is that is that right? And this is, of course, after the, the recent attempt to, to leapfrog the Ninth Circuit that uh, was struck down or rejected by the Supreme Court, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. So what we have here is uh, recently the Department of Justice took a pretty um, unusual move in the Ninth Circuit appeal of U.S. District Judge Alsop's injunction, uh, which prevents the government from dismantling DACA. Um, last week, the Justice Department lawyers filed a request to expedite the briefing in this appeal, but um, when the government lawyers sought to skip the Ninth Circuit in January, um, the Ninth Circuit expedited the appeal uh, on its own um, and set up a pretty fast-paced briefing schedule. Um, we have two briefs left. Um, the government's third reply brief is due as of now April 10th, and then the plaintiffs have 21 days to respond to that if they'd like. But the Justice Department said that they are going to file early. They'll file on April 3rd, and they want to uh, cut the plaintiff's response window down to 14 days, um, which is a, a pretty minimal change in the briefing schedule, especially for a, a federal appeal. Um, but they're saying that it's a, a necessary move, um, and they're casting this, um, I guess, as an attempt to allow the Supreme Court to grant a cert petition before they take the summer recess. Yeah, it sounds like the Trump administration is not terribly optimistic with his chances in the Ninth Circuit, perhaps uh, understandably so, so they're already looking ahead to, to the ultimate appeal to the high court. Um, we're humanities majors here, we're not math majors, but have you, have you looked into just what the what the, the schedule might end up looking like and whether, even if this is granted, the, the, the faster pace, whether um, the dates work so that uh, a SCOTUS appeal could happen this term? 
Well, it's a, it's a pretty extraordinary request. If, if it's granted and everything goes according to their plan, the final briefing will be filed um, in mid-April, on April 17th. Uh, but schedule, uh, at that point, uh, an oral argument will be scheduled, and we obviously would need an opinion from the Ninth Circuit before a petition for certiorari would be filed. Um, the attorneys I spoke to are expecting to argue the case in May, um, and the Ninth Circuit could issue a relatively quick response. It did uh, during the travel ban argument. But uh, the justices will have their, their final conference um, during which they'll consider these petitions on June 21st, which means the, the Ninth Circuit will have to issue an opinion uh, before then and provide enough time for both sides to brief the certiorari request before that date, which would be an extremely fast-paced schedule for something like this. Okay, so as you said, this is a fairly unusual appellate move. Um, have you gotten a sense of just, just how unusual? Is it somewhat along the lines of uh, the last maneuver attempted by the DOJ here, the the request to get certiorari before an appellate hearing? And um, along those same lines or with that in mind, um, have you heard from any attorneys as to whether it might be kind of risky to do a sort of back-to-back here, high-risk appellate Maneuvers. I mean, there's something to be said, of course, for zealous advocacy. But do any attorneys that you've spoken to think there could be a risk of uh, getting onto the Supreme Court's bad side if this uh, request gets up, up up their way? As it seems like it very well might. Well, it's it's an unusual move for a number of reasons. First of all, it's such a short request for a change in briefing schedule. It's a matter of of uh, days, really, that they're requesting here. Um, but underlying the whole problem with their appellate strategy, a number of lawyers have commented on this, is the fact that they have not requested a stay um, at any point in the proceedings. They are repeatedly telling uh, various federal courts, the Supreme Court, the Ninth Circuit, that this case is a matter of extreme urgency and it needs to be addressed as quickly as possible, but they have not yet requested a stay of ALSEP's injunction. Um, now, the government has said that's because they want a uniform immigration policy, but um, that's been detrimental to their requests, um, a lot of professors and, and lawyers are, are thinking thus far. Um, and the final reason that it's so strange is that um, there's no rule technically prohibiting the Supreme Court uh, from granting a cert uh, request during the summer. It can be done, and it has been done, and very significant cases in the past, but even if the cert grant is is given in, in June or during the summer recess or during the long conference in September when most of the summer petitions are considered, the grant of a cert um, request will do nothing to actually expedite the case at the Supreme Court level, and given how late we are on the term, um, there's little opportunity for this case to get an argument state. Uh, before the summer recess. Um, as for whether it'll agitate the court, one professor told me that it, it might agitate, you know, the Ninth Circuit, um, given that it's, again, such a short request, there's not a hugely significant change that they're desiring. Um, and, uh, you know, the justices of the Supreme Court, the Ninth Circuit, will, uh, will not likely penalize the party for uh, requesting uh, such schedules when considering the merits of the case, but it, it certainly leaves uh, at least questions to be answered and, and sour taste in some observers' mouths. Sounds like, uh, in, in short, this is definitely a, a to-be-continued here, so we'll tune back in with you as developments warrant. Uh, for now, Nick Sonnenberg, thanks for hopping on the podcast. I appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me. Monday, the California Supreme Court held that criminal defendants whose ruled-on but not yet final offenses that were reduced in severity by Proposition 47 do not automatically get the benefit of that reduction, but they must instead go through the measure's separate resentencing procedures, which include an inquiry as to any threat to public safety a defendant might pose. And, in a case the state high court will soon decide whether or not to take up, 
social media-based dating app Tinder is seeking to overturn a ruling, finding its pricing model violates California civil rights law by charging higher rates for older users. Tinder charged users over 30, approximately two times what it charged under 30 users for its premium service, reasoning the younger members are more likely to be cash-strapped. A prior California Supreme Court ruling from 1985 suggested that variable pricing models, say for children or seniors, are permissible, but the Second District Court of Appeals here viewed that as unpersuasive dicta and swiped left, as it wrote, in finding Tinder's model illegally discriminatory. Gerald Matman, it's a partner with Safarth Shaw in Chicago and chair of the firm's class action group. He analyzed the cases ruling for Lexology.com and joins us now. Gerald, thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much. Um, so the case here, Candelor versus Tinder, uh, it, at the center of it is the the Unruh Act, California's civil rights law of some longstanding vintage. Um, to, to begin, can you just tell me the, the sorts of discrimination that law proscribes? And sorry, as, a, as a footnote to that question, it, it doesn't specifically mention age, does it? You're right. Uh, the bread and butter of that particular statute is uh, discrimination on the basis of sex, race, color, religion, national origin, disability, medical condition, marital status, sexual orientation, immigration status. Uh, typically, it is viewed as analogous to federal workplace law protections. It does not mention uh, age, and that was particularly telling uh, in the case uh, at issue here involving Tinder because the trial court dismissed the lawsuit brought based on that act on the theory that uh, younger users who might be more budget constrained than older users and therefore needed a lower price point for the service, uh, that was a transaction, a set of circumstances that the trial court thought that this act does not uh, regulate or prohibit since age is not part of the statute itself. Okay, now the the second district court of appeal here in Southern California felt felt differently. It felt that the the Unruh Act did prohib, uh, prevent that sort of discrimination. This pricing model specifically, the court found violative of that that law. Um, why why did the the court of appeal differ here from the trial court? And I suppose specifically, um, there was a a Supreme Court precedent from a few decades ago, the 1980s, that at least in dicta seemed to suggest that age-based pricing was okay, sometimes desirable in the context of, say, you know, uh, senior citizen discounts or discounts for children and, and the like. Yes, the uh, second district uh, determined that uh, an individual's personal characteristics are such that can't justify any discriminatory or allegedly discriminatory uh, pricing system. And so, um, in essence, it opined that Tinder could not offer what was known as a Tinder Plus plan to budget-constrained uh, customers without using age as a basis of pricing. And so, to the extent the Court of Appeals thought that an income-based pricing model um, might be acceptable, that seemed to rub the Court of Appeals the wrong way because it was based on stereotypical uh, generalizations about uh, a person's background. It did refer to the California Supreme Court case from a few uh, decades ago, the Kiori case that said uh, age was a reasonable proxy or representation of income. And the Court of Appeals distinguished the case and said, well, that statement by the Supreme Court was dicta. And therefore, uh, it's holding the Court of Appeals holding that discrimination based on generalized assumptions is something that's untoward and wouldn't uh, justify the trial court's dismissal of the complaint. In essence, the Court of Appeals said the plaintiffs got their day in court on their on their theory. So essentially, they're saying it's basically impossible for, for Tinder to know whether or not these over 30 users are charging more are, in fact, any less cash-strapped than, than the younger ones, and so treating them as having more disposable income is discrimination un under the law. Is there some sort of pricing model that would allow for differential pricing that the, the Court of Appeals would allow? 
arguably, uh, the, the decision as written is very broad in terms of striking down pricing models based on generalized assumptions about personal characteristics. And so one would think a very viable argument could be made that a pricing model based on actuarial information such as like an insurance premium or based on uh, a history and data where there's a relationship between the assumption that underlies the pricing model um, and the actual characteristics of the person, that would pass muster because it wouldn't be in the eyes of the Court of Appeals invidious discrimination based on a stereotype. I guess we'll all see because the California Supreme Court will be deciding it and has accepted it for review. So things like uh, health club memberships, car rental prices, insurance, medical premiums, and the like, the whole range of these pricing models that might be different for men, for women, for older persons, for younger persons, all may be at uh, issue depending on the uh, scope of the decision uh, to be rendered. In essence, will it open the courthouse doors to plaintiff's lawyers making these attacks, or will the courthouse doors be narrowed or shut where these sorts of pricing uh, distinctions can be justified? Yeah, I know just down the street from here, for example, the, the Los Angeles Athletic Club charges different rates for members of different ages. Uh, so this this opinion, the appellate opinion, is, is broad enough, you think, that things like that and, and other pretty commonplace price differentials, like for younger folks trying to rent cars and, and things like that, could could be up um, or put into jeopardy? Well, I think as long as there is science behind the math, in essence, that teenage drivers between 16 and 19 are in more accidents than drivers um, between the ages of 30 and 40, and therefore the price in the insurance premium is different based on that actuarial information. I think that sort of uh, pricing model will pass muster, and it's pretty hard to argue that that's invidious or based on a stereotype as long as there's hard science behind the numbers. But where the generalization is not based on these numbers or proof or on science, uh, there may be a window there where plaintiff's lawyers find a way to, to advance these sorts of lawsuits. Um, one sort of implication or inference it seemed like the the appellate court was making was there's a, a bit of a slippery slope here. They seem to kind of think, you know, the next step or a few steps down the slope could be different prices at the grocery store for goods for someone either, you know, between the ages of 30 and 35 and someone 30 and younger. Um, do, you, do you see this context as a place where there's a potential slippery slope? That's not the sort of thing I tend to envision. Well, uh, I think that sort of parade of horribles uh, it might be inconsistent with the capitalist market and the way the world works. Right. And I haven't visited too many grocery stores that have those sorts of uh, pricing mechanisms. And so um, I'd be surprised to see that slippery slope uh, in actuality uh, taking place. I think this is more about the way in which merchants, businesses, price their services and if there's a legitimate basis for those pricing models. And I think this court case and this legal issue is all about how much science, how much math needs to be behind those pricing models as opposed to uh, simply off-the-cuff judgments or judgments based on stereotypes, some of which might be illegal under certain statutes. Okay, maybe one last one to wrap up. Do you have any sense of how the California Supreme Court might feel about this case? Perhaps it would feel a bit more persuaded by its own uh, language from that 1980s case. Seems possible. I think this is an instance where uh, the Supreme Court uh, will rely more on its uh, prior language than on the second district's decision. I think it's somewhat of an outlier. And so I would look for uh, the defense bar to probably have the the stronger argument at the Supreme Court on this particular issue. Okay, we'll find out um, soon enough. Uh, Jerry Matman, partner at Safe Earth and Shaw and chair of their class action group. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
attention of constitutional law enthusiasts and the general public alike is trained on the Eastern District of California, where the U.S. Department of Justice, headed by Attorney General Jeff Sessions, has launched its latest attempt to rein in California's attempts to shield its unauthorized immigrant residents from removal. In a supremacy clause-based lawsuit, the Department of Justice says three California laws, among them one limiting state officials from cooperating with federal immigration authorities, must be struck down because they interfere with the federal government's plenary right to enforce immigration law. Our next guest, Josh Blackman, is a associate professor at South Texas College of Law in Houston. He speaks and writes often on the proper balance of state and federal government power. He's an author and commentator in high demand. You've very likely read or seen him in the Washington Post, the National Review, on Fox News and CNN, just to name a few. He's also the recent recipient of the 2018 Joseph Story Award given to outstanding under-40 legal academics. And most recently, he penned an editorial in the Wall Street Journal with the Cato Institute's Ilya Shapiro on the case we'll speak about presently. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. So uh, you've written um, a, a good amount about this particular question, sanctuary city type policy, sanctuary cities, and the federal government's uh, perspective, and now um, uh, actual attempts to curtail such policies. Um, one thing you've noted is that there's no really consistent definition of what a sanctuary city is or a sanctuary city type type law is. Um, does that make speaking about those sorts of policies legalities or on the flip side of the coin, the constitutionality of the federal government's moves to um, sort of undermine them, uh, a bit of a tricky proposition? Well, I appreciate, uh, uh, I appreciate the, uh, the invitation. When we talk about the phrase sanctuary city, this is not a unified term with any sort of standardized meaning. Lots of cities have enacted various policies concerning their levels of cooperation with the federal government. Some of these policies simply refuse to provide cooperation. Um, some of these policies obstruct federal enforcement. And some of these are flat out interfering with federal enforcement. And depending on which side of that line a given policy is, uh, the constitutional analysis differs. So um, it's very often people say sanctuary policies are unconstitutional. That's not quite enough. You need to know what the specific policy at hand is. Okay, um, then we'll we'll dive into three of the policies at issue in the case here brought by the, the DOJ against the state of California. Um, but but before we do, just real quick, could could you describe to me a couple of previous efforts? I understand the administration and the Department of Justice have made um, already to to attack sanctuary city type policies in, in different places. Those attempts largely focused around funding or or, or defunding, withholding of, of federal monies to states or localities. That, that had these policies, um, but they largely w- did not succeed. Is that right? Can you tell me a bit about what those policies or what those attempts were and how they fared in court? Sure. Um, so shortly after President Trump took office, his administration announced that it would be defunding sanctuary cities. Um, what exactly that means, he didn't say. Subsequently, the Attorney General announced that certain cities uh, would not be eligible for her federal um, law enforcement grants, grants of money, if they fail to comply with certain requests to provide information about an alien's release date. So if there was a, uh, uh, an alien in state custody and the Fed said, when are you laying this person out? States said, we're not going to tell you. And Sessions replied that if that was not done, states would be at risk of losing their funding. Lawsuits were filed in various cities in uh, San Francisco and Santa Clara and Chicago and Philadelphia and a few others. And at least one judge in Chicago issued a global, I'm sorry, nationwide injunction barring the secretary from conditioning the payment of these funds to cooperating with the feds. Um, it was a strange issuance of the nationwide injunction because this was only the city of Chicago's laws that effect. Um, as I noted a moment ago, every city has slightly different policies, and it makes little sense to enjoin these things nationwide. So as it stands now, the courts actually are being adhered to, um, and Attorney General Sessions is uh, complying. So money hasn't been yanked from these uh, jurisdictions. But about a week ago in Sacramento, I was actually in town that day, uh, Attorney General Sessions announced a new lawsuit going on the offense, and he sued to challenge three of uh, California's new um, sanctuary laws that all went into effect in the past year. 
that's what they're referring to uh, to to global injunctions. I think re- reflects your uh, dissatisfaction generally as the uh, as to the power of district courts in uh, in, in, in issuing injunctions. <laughs> now, the the suit that that targets these laws. Um, let's let's start with the, the one that you think probably has the best chance of standing after this lawsuit. Um, that's sure. SB 54, the California Values Act. These are all three laws of pretty recent vintage, as you noted. Um, this law is is the one I think people might have most in mind when they think about sanctuary-type policies. It, it prohibits state officials from uh, cooperating, really, or corresponding or communicating with federal enforcement, uh, federal immigration enforcement officers. Um, it prohibits them from letting such officers know things like, for instance, when a um, say a arrestee, for example, um, who is uh, a non-citizen, doesn't have authorization to be in the country, when that person might be released from custody. I think it also prohibits um, state officers from asking folks about their immigration status and, and routine encounters, things along those lines. Um, what is the, the Department of Justice's argument as to, to why that law should fail? That That's largely based on a federal law, um, part of the Chapter 8 of the U.S. Code, right? And that, that federal law and the state law are just conflicting, so we have this supremacy clause argument. Is that the, the long and short of it? Well, there's a, lot, there's a lot in that question. Let me unpack it <laughs> one step at a time. Um, the California Values Act, which was signed to law this year, limits how state and local officials can cooperate with federal immigration officials. Absent a judicial warrant, law enforcement agencies in California are forbidden to provide federal authorities with information about an alien's release date. That prevents federal agents from taking custody of suspects at a secure facility, reducing the likelihood that the suspects will be caught and potentially putting federal officers in a dangerous situation. Um, the Supreme Court held in a case called Arizona versus United States, 2012. Uh, this case struck down provisions of that state's strict immigration law. And the court held that states can't enact laws that interfere with Congress's plenary power over immigration. Uh, Attorney General Sessions, however, argues that the California Values Act defies the 1996 federal law you mentioned. This is 8 U.S.C. 1373. This law bars state and local governments from prohibiting the exchange of, quote, information regarding, end quote, an individual's immigration status. As a threshold matter, it's not entirely clear if an alien's release date is information regarding the immigration the immigrant status. Although well, I think it probably is, but it's a credible argument that it's not. But the California Values Act doesn't interfere with federal law. Um, all it does is says that the state's officials can't cooperate. Um, and I actually think this 1996 federal law, this, this 1373, uh, is facially unconstitutional. Um, it's not a proper exercise of federal power to dictate how state law enforcement agencies manage the resources and prioritize their missions. Um, California's policy of non-cooperation no doubt makes enforcement more difficult, but doesn't constitute obstruction or interference. Um. So that sets up uh, just a couple of questions that I had about Section uh, 1373 um, and its constitutionality. I suppose um, you know the, the the salient inquiry in, into whether that sort of law does exceed the federal government's constitutional powers centers around whether it's um, as the court in the 1996 decision of. of a prince sort of said if it's uh, overly or if it, it, it in fact commandeer state officials if, if the federal government by way of that law is, is really directing um, state officers um, to do or not do certain things. Uh, can you just remind me exactly sort of what prince's holding it entails? And, and I think you've noted that some are skeptical as to whether there's even grounding for the anti-commandeering doctrine uh, in, in the 10th Amendment. Well, this is, a, this is a case that's not well understood. If you ask the average law student and the average law professor, what was the basis of the court's decision in Prince? They say, aha, it was a Tenth Amendment case. Um, and that's, that's not correct. It's only partially correct. At issue in Prince was the Brady Handgun Control Bill, which required local law enforcement agencies, sheriffs and the like, to run background checks when someone wanted to purchase a firearm. 
Um, this was a temporary measure until the until the federal instant background check database was built. It exists today. You can go buy a gun, and it takes a few minutes to do a background check. Back then, they didn't have this system. They wanted the local law enforcement to run the checks. The Supreme Court, in opinion, five to four by Justice Scalia, found that this provision of law is unconstitutional. But why was it unconstitutional? To say something violates the Tenth Amendment is something of a non sequitur, right? The Tenth Amendment says, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited to it by the states, are reserved to the states respectfully or to the people. So the question is, is this power delegated to Congress? If it's not, then it belongs to the states. That is, if Congress can't force a sheriff to run a background check, then it's retained by the states. So the Tenth Amendment is merely a rule of construction. The reason why the commandeering statutes, or the reason why the Brady Bill was unconstitutional, is that it was not a power delegated to Congress. And how do we know it was not a power delegated to Congress? Justice Scalia told us. He said that this was not a proper exercise of federal power. Now, if you remember back to your first year of law school, you remember a case called McCulloch versus Maryland. This is a case for the constitutionality of the Bank of the United States. Chief Justice Marshall discussed this concept of what necessary and proper means. There's no enumerated power to charter a bank, but he said that having a bank is a useful way of regulating commerce, for example, between the states. That is enumerated power. He said that having a bank is a useful way of managing a taxing system. That is enumerated power of Congress. But what Scalia said in print is that even if this Brady gun bill is a, is a necessary, that is a useful way of running background checks, it's not a proper function of doing so because it intrudes upon the sovereignty of the state. That is what rendered the, the Handbill Act unconstitutional. It was not a proper exercise of federal power. This came up also in the Obamacare litigation. The mandate was perhaps a useful way of uh, ensuring health care markets function, but it was not proper because it intruded upon individual liberty. We argue, um, Billy Shapiro and I argue in a new op-ed, that the 1373 operates in a similar fashion. There is no commandeering. 1373 does not force state officials to do X. What it does do is it tells states how to manage their law enforcement agencies, how to structure their laws, how to prioritize their missions. That is not a proper exercise of federal power. Therefore, it's beyond Congress's authority. This is a power retained by the states. And therefore, California has the power to enact the California Values Act. Now, uh, one question to so you. As as you describe it, it sounds like you you believe that section falls sort of within the reach of Prince's anti-commandeering uh, doctrine principles. But um, that there's there's a there's there's a thing that makes that sort of a unclear or a, a bit of a, a more blurry question, and that's that at at the time of the case, there were you know some some other federal laws that were less intrusive than that. Um, Brady background bill um, that involved mostly information sharing going on between the federal government and the state government. I think one in particular that was mentioned at the time uh, related to the sharing of information as to missing children. Um, and, and I think the, the court tried to limit its reach of its opinion to to, to make sure that certain laws like that, the, the ones that were less intrusive, might still survive um, that case. And, and on its face, at least, 1373 sounds a bit like an information sharing provision, but it sounds like, as you say, you think it's, it's, it's more intrusive than that and, in effect, uh, reaches into the operations of, of state um, uh, law enforcement offices. Well, you're exactly right. Um, I wrote a post on this about a year ago about the constitutionality of 1373. Um, during the arguments in Prince, um, Justice O'Connor asked about the a missing child statute, which basically requires law enforcement to report missing children. This is not enacted pursuant to a spending program. It's just a flat-out mandate. Um, I think the statute's facially unconstitutional. I don't think the feds can make them do this. It hasn't been challenged, but I don't think it's valid. Um, the Supreme Court basically ignored that issue in the uh, Prince decision. They, they sort of ducked it. Um, what I would note, though, is that both the Handgun Act and this missing child statute were enacted before Prince was decided. So it's very likely, had Congress looked at this after Prince, they may have made a different decision. Uh, but I don't think either statute can be reconciled with the uh, with the Prince NFIB line of cases. 
Um, one just question, sort of notwithstanding the fact that, as you describe it, Prince has pretty stable constitutional grounding. That, that was a 5-4 decision, and there's been a few, I think, three justices change over since then, including the author of the majority. Uh, is it probably, um, do you think that the, the court still would view that, that case the same way today? Oh, I do. Um, again, the, the if you look at the NFIB case 2012, the Obamacare mm-hmm. decision, um, both Chief Justice Roberts' opinion and the joint dissent rely extensively on the Prince doctrine of what's necessary but not proper. Um, so I still think there are votes for it. In fact, I think there probably are more votes for it uh, because of the dynamics of the sanctuary litigation. I think this case, um, this, uh, this one might actually be 9-0. I think the court will split on the other aspects of the California law, but I think they go, this is actually going to be a 9-0 upholding the, uh, the California Values Act. Sure, yeah. Um, at first reading, and, and, and um, as Attorney General Sessions suggests in the complaint, um, the, the California Values Act and 1373 pretty directly conflict, but it sounds like you, you think that the California law doesn't, in fact, conflict with the federal law. And so is it possible that, that the court won't have to, to get into to, to reach the, the constitutional questions as to the federal law? Um. Let me put it this way. In order for a state law to be preempted by a federal law, the federal law itself must be constitutional. In other words, you can't find interference with 1373 unless 1373 itself is valid. If the court finds that 1373 is facially invalid, then there can't be a conflict if there's no preemption. So I've been making this point now for a year. Eventually, the court will have to confront 1373 on its face. Um... I think in either in this case, there's another case from Texas which presents similar questions. I don't think it'll take the Texas case away from the California one, but um, I, th- I think we will see this at some point. Okay. Um, we can move on to a couple of the other laws that were uh, challenged by the DOJ in this lawsuit. One is uh, AB 103, another recent law um, that deals with the, the access that state officials must have to centers where uh, folks are held um, prior to potential uh, removal from the country. Um, some of those facilities are state-owned. Some, I believe, are uh, owned by private entities that are hired by the federal government to, uh, for that purpose. Um, now, the, the DOJ's arguments as to why a state law um, allowing or mandating state access to private facilities run by the federal government. That's another supremacy clause-based argument, right? But you also say that that case you mentioned, the, the third or fourth case, folks read in con law and, and, and one all year, McCullough v. Maryland, also comes into play here with that intergovernmental uh, sovereign immunity doctrine. Sure. Um, so the second sanctuary policy is a little bit harder to justify. It instructs California's attorney general to inspect and review detention facilities both public and private, in which non-citizens are being detained. Um, obviously, there is no problem if California wants to inspect its own facilities, run, I'm sorry, its own facilities, uh, but the state exceeds its authority when it targets facilities run by the federal government or its contractors. States have the power to review federal facilities generally. For example, county health inspectors can check out the cafeteria in a federal courthouse. There's no problem there. But state officials cannot burden a specific exercise of federal power with additional constraints. Um, Targeting federal agents for heightened scrutiny violates the so-called intergovernmental immunity doctrine. Two centuries ago, Maryland sought to impose a tax on a branch of the Second Bank of the United States in the landmark case McCulloch v. Maryland, 1819. Uh, The Supreme Court held that Maryland had overstepped its authority. The power to tax involves the power to destroy, Chief Justice Marshall wrote. That's where it comes from, by the way. The, the state lacks the power to control the constitutional measures of the federal government, he said, which the Constitution declares to be supreme. So through the state's, uh, but through the state's novel regime, uh, California Attorney General Javier Becerra isn't merely inspecting federal facilities in a neutral and consistent fashion, but according to the federal government's complaint, has, quote, demanded access to various private documents respecting the welfare of persons detained, end quote, by the feds. To the extent California is imposing additional burdens on federal immigration facilities and no other federal properties, this second sanctuary law is unconstitutional. Now, um, 
the state has yet to file any any papers in the lawsuit, I believe. But I, I've seen, I think, at least one counterargument, which which goes thus: that the Tenth Amendment allows states to, to to pass laws that address public safety within within its borders, and that facilities where folks are uh, tend to be housed sometimes um, are, are sites where the conditions are not ideal, either physically or uh, in reference to due process, legal process. Um, what What's your kind of response to, to that argument that this must be entailed within the Tenth Amendment right of powers reserved to the state? Um, again, California can generally regulate facilities in its own state. What they can't do is target a specific exercise. So, for example, we have federal facilities where federal prisons are being held in California. They're not subject to these rules. You have other sorts of federal courthouses where uh, a prisoner is detained pending trial. They're not subject to these rules. Um, what the state can't do is target a specific exercise of federal power. That goes beyond what the state's reserve powers um, include. Um, and more generally, if the Attorney General wants to sue the United States for violation of civil rights of its detainees, that's fine. What they can't do is demand access to information about it. To be clear, this statute basically instructs the Attorney General to write a report. Fine. I couldn't care less if he wrote a report. No one's going to read it. No one's going to care. But to the extent he starts demanding information from the feds about how they're running their facilities, that's where it runs afoul. So it might not be a facial challenge, but an as-applied challenge, that the way, in the, attorney, the way in which the Attorney General is implementing this regime runs afoul of this intergovernmental immunity doctrine. Um, now, the, the third law at issue that California passed, uh, I think described approximately here, uh, prohibits uh, private employers from allowing immigration of, um, officials entry into their workplaces unless those officials have a, a warrant. Um, and uh, are the arguments here pretty pretty similar? We're talking about um, this law interfering with the federal government's general ability to enforce immigration law. Are there any other arguments that come in, into play? Yeah, the, the final challenge statute, the Immigration Work Protection Act, is the least likely to survive judicial scrutiny. Under this law, if a federal immigration officer informs a business owner that he employs a criminal alien, the proprietor is barred from consenting to a search of the premise. The state actually punishes the businessman with a substantial fine simply for being a good citizen, unless the federal agent compels cooperation for, by obtaining a warrant. Now, the important point is this. Neither the Constitution nor federal law requires a warrant in such a scenario. California's law applies only to immigration officers. Proprietors remain free to consent to searches by federal environmental or health and safety inspectors. So if a OSHA inspector shows up or an EPA inspector shows up, the business owner can consent to a search, not a problem. But if it's an ICE agent, they cannot consent. Because this California law interferes with a congressionally mandated mission, the Immigrant Workers Protection Act interferes with federal law. It is unconstitutional both by virtue of the Supremacy Clause and the Intergovernmental Immunity Doctrine. Okay. Um, you know, one, one policy concern that has been cited as undergirding that, that law, the Worker Protection Act, is that there are employers um, that will hold over workers' heads the threat of a, an, an ICE raid in order to potentially underpay workers or withhold payment. Um, sort of more broadly, in, in cases like this involving the Supremacy Clause or the Tenth Amendment, it seems less at the center of the inquiry what a state government's purpose or interest is in passing state laws. You know, the state would also say it's an interest in passing the non-cooperation type laws to, to make uh, folks not fear routine interactions with police and thereby make communities safer. On the other hand, the federal government raises some policy arguments in terms, you know, along the lines of those laws making their officers less safe because they tend to have to then go out into the community to find folks that they could have apprehended uh, if the state officials had let them know where they were and when they were being released. Um, is it the case that those policy or governmental purpose arguments come less into play in these sorts of uh, uh, cases as opposed to, say, you know, First Amendment or Fourth Amendment cases where there is more balancing involving a governmental interest? 
I don't think California's intent matters much here. I think it's the operation of the law that actually matters. If California wants to make it an unfair labor practice to threaten to fire someone because of immigration actions, they can do that. What they can't do is require the employer to demand a warrant before a consensual search is performed when federal law doesn't. That is, California has within its power a certain way to protect its undocumented community. That's not, that's not a question. But what they're trying here is to actively thwart. And it's a difference between non-cooperation and interference. The first law is on the side of non-cooperation, so I think it will be okay. The latter two laws are on the side of interference, and I don't think they will be upheld in the long run. Okay. Um, speaking of laws that were along the lines of interference and were not upheld, you mentioned the case Arizona versus the United States from a few years ago that reached the uh, reached the Supreme Court, um, where Arizona laws that were um, stricter um, than federal immigration laws were struck down. Uh, and that case is cited a lot by the Department of Justice in its complaint. It has a lot of good language saying that you know the, the federal government holds plenary power over this area of law, immigration law, and states can't really get in the way. Um, that's all pretty helpful language. But I was curious if you thought a court might look askance a little bit at uh, you know cites to that case by the DOJ here, because it seems fair to say the current Department of Justice wouldn't have brought that lawsuit trying to rein in uh, stronger immigration policies in, in Arizona. Does that matter at all, the way the kind of holding of the case points, if the language is, is very you know useful for the, the party? Well, unfortunately, Arizona versus United States is a fairly muddled opinion. Mm-hmm. Trying to narrow down exactly what is held is something of a difficult task. But at the most basic level, the court held that state policy cannot interfere with federal immigration laws. Um, and that, that that's, I think, the relevant test, right? It's not about whether there's a conflict, but whether they're interfering. And I think for the reasons I discussed earlier, aspects of California law, either on its face or as applied, aren't interfering with federal law. Of course, the irony is that uh, it was the Obama administration that brought the Arizona lawsuit, and now it's the Trump administration relying on it. Everyone just sort of switches sides, and this happens over and over again. Yeah. Um, okay, then it sounds like uh, overall you'd say maybe the, the California Values Act seems to be uh, in a, a decent position here, and the other two maybe less so. Is that how you see it playing out in, in the district court yeah. here? If so, do you think that the DOJ well, no, would appeal? No, no, I mean, the, the, the California is going gonna, is gonna to win all the way up to the Supreme Court. They'll lose the Supreme Court. Um, it, it, it's, it's not going to win the Ninth Circuit. There's there's a 0% chance Trump gets a victory in the Ninth Circuit. I think I think there's a circuit court rule about that. I think Trump can't win. Um, but uh, it, but I think he won by the Supreme Court. Okay. And then that other point, just to close, you mentioned that folks tend to, to switch sides, the party outside of power, um, all of a sudden becomes very beholden to the idea of constitutional conservatism. Um, you know, now there are folks on sort of the left of the political center that are very keen on making sure the the national government is, is reined in, whereas perhaps previously, I think you would certainly argue that uh, those same folks would would be more sanguine or have been more sanguine with um, reaches of, of federal power. Um, is this just the sort of thing that, that happens uh, as, as party has changed? Do you think this is an opportunity or do you think a, a potential uh, case that could make folks more aware of the the value of constitutional conservatism and, and it sort of brings folks together that tend to not be on the same side of issues here. Some folks on, on the political left and also some folks like yourself, uh, constitutional conservatives, libertarian type folks. Um, no, I, I, I would love to say that um, after the Trump administration, all the progressives who have suddenly discovered federalism will keep those instincts. Um, it doesn't matter. Um, I, I'm a federalist through and through. I think in some cases it helps conservatives, and in some cases it helps liberals. Uh, but I think the party lines will keep switching from side to side, um, often without any reflection at all. Um, some of the arguments that um, California, for example, the nationwide injunction, right? This was used very effectively by Texas and other states in the last seven or eight years, soon the Obama administration. Mm. And all the blue states, Washington, California, filed briefs in court saying you can't have nationwide injunctions, they're not allowed, and they lost that issue. Now they're relying on the exact same issue to get nationwide injunctions against President Trump. Um, again, I don't think advocates have any duty for consistency. They're, they're, they're serving their clients, and their clients want to achieve certain policy goals. So I don't actually I don't fault California for this. Um, professors and scholars, on the other hand, I have a little bit less patience for because they they shouldn't be just pursuing the, the latest lead. Um, but people 
people often switch sides. Um, uh, I'm okay with this, uh, where I am in this, this, this situation. I think the California laws are okay in part, not okay in part, sort of split the difference. And um, I think that's ultimately how the Supreme Court will handle this in a couple of years. Sure. We'll, we'll close there. Thanks, uh, Professor Josh Blackman, for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks. And with that, our show for March 16th, 2018, is complete. Thanks very much for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. Don't forget that listeners of the podcast can receive one hour of CLE credit just by completing a short true-false test appended to this episode on our website. I'm Brian Cardell. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.